I just pray that this would be a comfort, that we can rest in this fact that our King has good intentions for us. As the ushers come forward and collect their tithes and offerings, I'd just like to invite you guys to either sing, to just listen, to just rest in this moment.
is more than just something that you do for us it's who you are so allow us to have faith and not what you do for us but who you are and that you'll honor your promises I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel, chapter 12. If you need a Bible, uh, we'd be glad to provide you one. The ushers have one up right now. And in that Bible, we'll be on page 215. Hands down, the most difficult moment that I deal with fairly often as a pastor is when I'm sitting in a room with somebody who has poured out their heart, pleaded to God, begged God for something to happen in a particular situation only to discover that God doesn't. Absolutely the most difficult moment that I deal with, and unfortunately, regularly. And the reason why it's difficult is because just like the person who's sitting there has a question, why God? I'm sitting there silently listening to them speak and thinking exactly the same thing. Why God? Because if I had the power of God and, and understanding his character, what we get from his word, I would write a different storyline in every situation. I would write the storyline to be winsome because God would get the glory. But God doesn't always do that. He does it sometimes and he does miraculous things that are beyond expectation. We pray for incredible things to happen and he does it. And he does it in a manner that there's no other explanation other than God did it. But he doesn't always. Sometimes God, you would think, has a certain level of protection around situations because we prayed ahead of time only to see God didn't protect. Just two weeks ago, I talked about commissioning mission teams and how when we pray for mission teams... We're praying for God's protection of them and the fulfillment of their mission. Just this past Wednesday, 
received an email from our district superintendent, Eddie Cole. Uh, those of you that were on the women's retreat, Eddie's wife, uh, Rebecca, was the speaker. And in that email, he shares that three churches in our district, three free churches, a free church in Bethel, just north of us, a Hispanic free church in Reading, and a free church from New Jersey in the suburbs. So a rural church, a Hispanic urban church, and a suburban church. All three churches together went to Columbia to do mission work together. They involved the three senior pastors, involved several members of their, of their church, each of their churches, and they were down in Columbia establishing some new work of missions. As they were driving along a precarious road, a tire blew, caused the van to roll, and three members of that team were killed. This just happened on Tuesday. I'm sure each of those churches prayed prayers of protection, praying for God to return them. And if the churches didn't, which again, I would highly doubt that would be the case, their families certainly were praying for the protection of those teams and for their safe return and the fulfillment of the vision of the mission that they were on. I'm happy to say that since that time, revival has broken out in the area where this accident happened. And the pastors are sending emails saying, God is doing something miraculous in spite of this tragedy. And that's awesome. The mission's being fulfilled. But they're trying really hard to get, because one of those people killed was somebody that actually lives in Columbia. But they're trying to get the other two bodies back home so that the families can grieve. So how do you think those families feel? Their prayers went unmet. Two years ago on this stage, I interviewed a man named Don Riker. He now attends this church. Some of you may not realize that. But Don shared the story of how when he was on the mission field, he went on a short-term mission trip. He normally does ministry work here in this area, but he went on a short-term mission trip to India and had observed many different people who had leprosy in India be healed in the name of Jesus, including within their own team, being able to see people being healed of leprosy. Don placed his hand on one of those lepers, prayed for God to heal that leper. Several months later, Don is becoming more and more ill, Doctors are befuddled. They have no idea what's going on. And then eventually they've tied some things together and realized he had leprosy, but it was affecting him internally. But by this point, he had been gone months with that disease inside of him, untreated. And it affected his nervous system. And much prayer has been prayed over Don. Prayers of healing, prayers of anointing, only to continue to suffer and still suffers. All this because he put his hands on a leper in Jesus' name to pray. Do you think Don has every reason to be embittered or angry? Do you think those pastors that are in Columbia right now have every reason to have just been defeated and say, God, why didn't you protect us as we had prayed? Cool moment also in Don's life. Because his system is compromised, 
he's now struggling with bronchitis and has had very few moments where he can actually speak. He was scheduled to speak at Fan the Flame a little over a week ago. And for days leading up to it, did not have a voice, even was taken to the emergency room within 48 hours of Fan the Flame. He wakes up the morning of Fan the Flame, he can talk. He speaks at Fan the Flame. The next day, he can no longer talk. Unexplainable, right? Other than, God, other than I can say God is good, but I don't understand all that God does. The reality is, is that in each of our lives, we probably know someone or we are that someone where we have pleaded for someone's life to be spared only to see that person pass away. Or we have pleaded to God for a marriage to be restored only to have papers served. Or we have prayed for that job that would actually feed the family after being without a job only to see we didn't get it. You can fill in the dots. Where you have pleaded to God desperately only to see that God didn't. We've had tragedy here within this church in the last couple years where people we prayed for desperately, even anointed, and they passed. What do you do? How do we then respond to God when he chooses not to respond in the manner we have asked. What becomes of your relationship with God from that moment on? If God doesn't, do you give up praying? Do you become embittered? Does he all of a sudden take a lower notch in your, in your respect? Those are questions that I'm confident many in the last 36 hours have been asking. God, where are you in this? I'm not sure I even want to pray anymore. The text today is a tragic story. It's absolutely tragic. Could you imagine parents in the room could you imagine that your mistake would cost the life of one of your children? Could you imagine such a context as that? And how would you live beyond with that kind of guilt or regret? The story today is in a context of exactly that. David, who was a man after God's own heart, who from his teenage years had been faithful to God, loved God passionately, did everything right in his teen years, and then given the opportunity to rise through the ranks of the Israeli army to the point where he even ate at King Saul's table. Only to find that as God would continue to give more and more favor to him, that King Saul turned against him and multiple times tried to kill him. David had two very significant opportunities where he could have killed King Saul 
and spared his own life, but chose not to. David had proven himself to be a man not only after God's own heart, but deeply a man after God's own heart. I mean, who can pass the test of avoiding killing your adversary when he's right there in your hands? Justifiably being able to take him out. But he did not. That's the depth of character of David. But like any human being, sometimes we enjoy the privileges and favors of God to a point where it becomes an aspect of pride. David becomes king. They're now going, it's time for the season of doing battle, so the warmer weather had come. The kings usually lead the way to take their armies out to defeat their adversaries, but David chose to stay home this time. That was his first mistake. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. Probably enjoying the privileges of being king and having all that his heart desired. He's walking around on the top of his palace. He sees a woman bathing on a rooftop nearby. And his heart lusted for her. He sent some of his own people to go and and get her. She comes and he discovers and finds out she's married. But married to one of his best soldiers. Doesn't stop David. He wanted her. So he lay with her, impregnated her, which was not his intent. So now he's got a problem. People are going to find out what he had done. So he then creates a scheme by which he can cover it up. So he's, he brings Uriah back to Jerusalem and, and sets it up where hopefully Uriah will come and be with his wife. So then th- that way this child could then be accused of only being this, the the son of Uriah. But Uriah's heart was loyal and he was supposed to be with the soldiers, so he chose not to go home. He just stayed in Jerusalem on the streets and was praying and preparing himself to go back to battle. Well, plan A didn't work for David in covering up his sin, so he did plan B. He sent Uriah back to the battlegrounds, but gave an order to the general to send Uriah to the most uh, uh, insecure place and, and have him at the most intense spot of the battle and then withdraw the troops from around Uriah so that Uriah would be vulnerable and killed. That way, David is not accused of any kind of murder because it wasn't his arrow that would kill him. It would be the enemy's. A great plan, right? Except for God seeing it all. Uriah dies. God sends the prophet Nathan to go talk to David. Nathan tells David, basically unveils David as being this person who has done a a horrific thing in the eyes of God. God tells David through Nathan, calamity, great havoc is going to hit your family from here forward. Up to this point, David's family had nothing but blessing. From this point and beyond, nothing but tragedy. So this message is given to David, but the final message was even worse. This child that is now going to be born to Bathsheba, this child that's the result of their sin, this child is now going to die because of your sin. 
a father is being told, your mistake is costing the life of your infant child. Can you imagine the horrific news that must have been to David? This is where we pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 12. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord has taken away your sin, Nathan said. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child, and Uri- uh, uh, the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. Let me stop there. In the culture of the Middle East, if a person throws themselves on the ground and they take off their normal robes and they put on something like a gunny sack, a sackcloth that they put over themselves and then they lie on the ground, it is symbolic of being the lowest of low among humanity. He stripped himself of all of his kingly ornamental robes. He threw himself on the ground and he is pleading. Not only is he posturing himself as being, God, I am low. I have lowered myself as low as a human being can go. I am crawling on the ground. I have nothing covering me except for a sack. And I'm not eating. I'm not bathing. I am humbling myself before you. Does it get any more desperate than that? For seven days, David lay on the ground, wearing the sack, not eating, not bathing, but crying out to God constantly for seven days. He did not relent. This was what he did. Verse 20 or 18. On the seventh day, the child died, and David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they thought, while the child was still, still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him that the child is dead? He may do something desperate. One of two possibilities there. When a man is groveling in the dirt for seven days, refusing to be comforted, praying to God, crying out to God. And and those that were the servants of the king are seeing this and are begging him to eat, begging him to, to bathe, and he refuses. And now they know that the child has died, and they're afraid to tell him, lest he do something desperate. If you see a person in that state for seven days, what do you think they're thinking? They might kill themselves. Or because of David's reputation, might kill the messenger. 
Either way, it's tragic. And, they, and they're afraid to tell David of what has happened to his child. This is every parent's nightmare being lived out in the moment. And nobody wants to be the one to bring that news. Verse 19, David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the, t- the ground. After he washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went to the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request, they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept and pleaded. You begged, but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows? Perhaps the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? No, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. I think there's something here to take notice of and how to respond when God doesn't. You see, David was grieving and grieving hard over the news he had received and pleading with God as he's going forward. The death of the child was imminent. And he exasperated himself for seven days, pleading for God. But then the child dies, and what changes? First of all, his posture. Going from a place of begging, lowering himself, he gets up and begins to have himself cleaned up, put back on his robes, so that he can then go to the temple. So the posture change is huge. Because when a person is on the ground groveling and begging for God, they are humbled, they are pleading, and they are desperate But when a person stands up and they clean themselves up, what have they chosen to do? To live. The posture has changed. They have chosen to live. And then, not only that, he gives context for how he's going to live. He goes from after being cleaned up, now he's walking, he's choosing to live, and he goes to the temple of God to do what? Worship. He doesn't go there to blame. He doesn't go there to share his bitterness. He goes and he worships. He worships. And it's not just, God, you're a killjoy, but I'll still love you anyway. We're going to look at a psalm here in a moment, and you'll hear that, no, David goes and he says, God, You are good. You are good, and you always are, and you always will be. So he worships. He changes his posture. He decides, I am moving forward, but he chooses to do so in worship towards God. 
Thirdly, verse 22 is so profound. When asked why he's changed his posture and why he would go to the temple and worship and why now he would eat in spite of the fact that his child is dead, he answers by saying this, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I thought, who knows, maybe the Lord will be gracious to me and let him live. There's a key word there. It's gracious. You see, he acknowledged that God owed him nothing. As he's pleading on the ground, as he is, he is in this most humble state, he is not approaching God and leveraging, saying, God, look at me, I'm King David. I'm the man after your own heart. I'm the one you chose. He didn't do any of that. He acknowledges that if God was to intervene on his child's behalf, it would have been an act of grace. Something he did not earn. Something that God, that he did not, was not owed by God to be done. So in his pleading and praying, David was grieving. He was grieving all through that time in preparation for whatever God would choose to do. Lastly, there's something else to hold on to with David in his response to this tragedy. Not only did he change his posture and choose to live, not only did he worship God and say, God, you are good. Not only did he think that, no, God didn't owe me anything. This would have been an act of grace. But lastly, there was a perspective that David was living by as to why he was choosing to live. Verse 23, reading it, it says, But now that this child is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? No, I will go to him and he will not return to me. What is David saying? He's speaking to an eternal perspective. That there is life here, but it's temporary. But there is a place where my child just went that I will go and be with him eventually. So I worship him now. I'll live for him now. And eventually, someday, I'll get to be with my child for eternity. Too often in grief, our sights are set so close to us. And that's detrimental. Because what we see in the present is too horrific. I've been in a context that these students are in right now. And I was stuck looking at my mistakes. And I stopped living in my mind. My posture was not in pleading because they were gone. My friends, two friends killed in two car accidents in three days. I stopped living. My posture did not have an eternal perspective. I certainly didn't worship God. In fact, I was angry and ticked off at God. And as a result, the accusation or the fear of the friends where it says, we're afraid for what he might do. That was a reality that was potential in my life because I was going through it in the darkness and not telling anyone what I was feeling. But David chose a posture of, I'm going to live and I'm going to worship 
and I recognize God owes me nothing. And besides, there's eternity at hand. It wasn't until I understood the eternal perspective that light bulbs started going off in my life. And as a result, God changed me. Where out of tragedy, my life was transformed. I want us to read Psalm 77. It's in page 406 in the Bibles we handed out. But Psalm 77 is David's journal about the condition of his heart in this moment. We're given a great privilege to know what's going on in the side of a man, inside of a man who is grieved deeply. So David wrote this psalm in the midst of the storm, having seen his child die. And here are his thoughts that explains all the more the statements we just read in 2 Samuel. Beginning in verse 1. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. He's describing that whole seven days. I would not be comforted. I remember you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing so he couldn't sleep, and he was unable to speak. I thought about the former days and the years of long ago, and I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never again show his favor? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise to me failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in his anger withheld his compassion? Let me stop there for a moment. You been there? When it got so difficult, so intense, so dark, where the only thing that could come out of your mouth was the questions to God like, are you ever going to speak to me again? Am I ever going to experience your favor again? Has your mercy towards me ended? I mean, he describes, he was praying, he had cried out relentlessly, hands stretched out, God, hear me. Silence. The questions start pouring in. God, will you ever? Here's where the psalm takes a turn. Verse 10. Then David thought this. To this will I appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as you, God? 
You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God, and the waters saw you and wreathed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down their water, and the heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind, and your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked as you created your path. Through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock through Moses and Aaron. When you're at that crossroads of your faith, where all your experiences of God are now into question because God seemingly has not heard you, God seemingly has withdrawn his favor from you. God seemingly has stopped being merciful towards you. What are you going to do when you're in that moment? Well, David, in his worship, decided this. Even though I feel that God is not near me, even though I feel that God is not hearing me, I am going to remember who God is and what God has done over the years. And he runs through his memories of where God showed his power. God showed his mercy. God showed his favor. And God declared his promises. And he concludes with the most, one of the most powerful stories in the history of Israel to which he is king of. The moment when the Israelites thought they were going to be annihilated by the Egyptian army. And God provides a way through the sea. But in his story of that. He says, the people did not see you, but yet the footprints of you were there. See, Israel went across that Red Sea, and yes, they were delivered, but they did not see it for what God was doing. They couldn't see God, but God was right there carrying them across. His footprints were the ones in the sand. David found hope that when he was at his lowest moment, when everything seemed to be desperate and tragic, he worshiped. He trusted God in spite of the answers. His heart did not feel God's love but his mind told him, God loves you. His emotions wanted to be angry and say, God, you've forgotten your promises, but his mind told him, God's promises are always good. So for those of you directly affected on Friday, or those of you that have gone through something extremely tragic, where God did not respond to the prayers as you'd prayed. My question to you is this. Can you worship him even if he doesn't respond in the way you'd prayed? Can you go forward in faith in posture saying, I'm going to live today 
trusting in the grace of God. Even if he chooses not to respond the way you wish. Can you change your posture from that of grieving and say, God, I'm going to live. I'm not going to stay here where my perspective is about the now, but I will trust that you are going to draw me towards eternity and I will have hope in that that will get me through this season of despair. I will choose a posture to live even if you choose not to rescue. You see, that's where all of us are in those crossroads of crisis points of faith. Do you worship in spite of it? Do you live and hope in the promises of eternity in spite of it? And as a result, draw near to God, even if it feels like he's gone from you. The truth is, David realized, I can't see him, I can't feel him. But my mind tells me from all the past, he's right there carrying me at my most desperate point. This song tells the story of worshiping trusting and stepping out in life even if God chooses to do differently than what you'd hoped. Let this song speak to your heart. Sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose some. And right now, right now I'm losing bad. It's easy to sing when there's nothing to bring me down. But what will I say? When I'm held to the flame like I am right now I know you're able and I know you can Save through the fire with your mighty hand But even if you don't My hope is you alone They say it takes a little faith to move a mountain well good thing a little faith is all I have right now but God when you choose to leave mountains unmovable
going through something right now that would be considered tragic, desperate, and they're struggling to trust in God. I want to give space up here for people to just come up and stand as a posture of saying, I'm moving forward, but I'm also worshiping that God is good in spite of how I feel. The band's just going to keep playing under this moment. What I would ask is that you would pray for people who come forward, and if you need to leave, leave quietly in an attitude of prayer, and once you're out in the lobby, you feel free to talk. But the front on both sides and along the front here is a place of worship, giving themselves over to say by posture, I choose God in spite of my pain. So God, I just ask for freedom to come for those who need to come by posture and stand before you and acknowledge they choose to worship you in spite of the pain. And God, for those of us who are not hurting in this moment or not feeling that in this moment, draw our hearts to pray for those who are. This is a moment where we want you to heal as you're healing David, as he writes that psalm, heal us as we stand here before you, knowing in our minds that you're a good God, but in our hearts grieving and and filled with pain. Speak to us, God, and lift our spirits in posture to worship you so that we can see more eternally the hope we need to live tomorrow. In Jesus' name I pray. So if you need to leave, this is your time where you can just leave if you wish. If you want to stay and pray and pray for those who are up front, you can do so. But if by posture you want to come up front just as a personal declaration, I am choosing to worship, this front is available for you right now.
I'd like to invite, if there are people in the room that just want to pray a prayer over these students, come up to the microphone and say a brief prayer. Let it happen. If that's a calling that you feel like God's put upon your heart, just come up here now. We'll let that prayer happen. And please keep it brief so that others can pray as well. Jesus, I know that it's difficult to see beyond what's in front of these young people right now, Lord Jesus. And Lord Jesus, I'm not minimizing the loss of life, but Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give these people, these young people, Lord Jesus, and everybody that was directly involved with this accident the ability lord jesus to give the one that forgive the one that caused it because lord jesus if they can't forgive lord jesus they're not going to be able to heal lord jesus and so i pray lord jesus and we don't we don't know all of the stuff behind that or why it happened or anything like that but i just pray lord jesus that they would be able to forgive her and that restoration would take place because of the forgiveness, Lord Jesus. And that there would be an example set, Lord Jesus, because of the forgiveness. Almighty gracious Heavenly Father, you're you're good. I've experienced tragedy in my own family. Father, we, there's always a hole. The pain comes a year later, months later. It comes and goes. But Father, we pray that good will, be, will come from this, that these students and other believers that don't attend this church that are part of Warwick High School, uh, that they will shine, they will reflect your light into the community, into the hearts of the students around them. They will show compassion. And Father, that you will be glorified through this in some way even though we can't see it right now that your name will be lifted high even when we don't understand right now and I pray your grace your mercy and your peace upon those impacted at LAFC and the families that are grieving the extended families and their friends Father you are good and you have you're in control even when we don't understand you're in control, Father. We thank you for your, your goodness to us. Father God, we are heartbroken, but we are not going to despair to the point of death. We're going to choose to live. We're going to choose to worship. We're going to understand your grace. And we're going to long for the day when death is no longer 
So God, I just ask that you would reveal yourself afresh and anew to these students and to those who came up over other issues, sickness, relational brokenness, loss, whatever it may be, God. We're going to trust in you. You are a good God. Lord, in these next few days, we ask for you to do a work that is unexpected, that a kingdom will be grown right here in the Lidditz area and the school districts around us, that a fresh wind of grace and mercy would be experienced. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Thank you for your posture in this room. If you know any of these students, I'm sure, or even not, hugs are welcome. And if you know somebody else that's hurting for something else, you know, other context, give them a hug, pray for them. We have people over here that'd be very willing to pray with you. That's what they're here for.